I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2020 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series, supported by AgriSolutions. In today's program, we get some expert perspective on the current scope and depth of strip-till adoption, along with some outlook on the future opportunities to expand the farming practice. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you'll be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to AgriSolutions. AgriSolutions is the market leader in wearable parts, components, accessories, and solutions for tillage, seeding, planting, fertilizing, hardware, and inventory management solutions. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of in-field solutions to advance your strip-till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Belota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Well, forecasts are always fun, if not entirely accurate, and provide an opportunity to predict the future. In the case of strip-till, I've anecdotally heard for years that there are pockets of growth. Evidence comes out of farm visits, where I'll hear about someone being the local ambassador for the practice, promoting the benefits, and converting neighbors. These are encouraging stories not only to hear, but to share, because they reinforce the commitment strip-tillers make along with the challenges they face and rewards they earn. But can we quantify real growth of strip-till acres? About a decade ago, our sister publication, No-Till Farmer, reported on the estimated total of strip-till acres in the U.S. based on survey data and state research conducted by local agronomists. The 2007 study revealed about 3.6 million acres of corn were actively strip-tilled that year, or roughly 19% of the nation's no-till corn acreage at the time. Not surprising, and consistent with our more recent strip-till benchmark study data, the highest concentration of strip-till acres were in the Corn Belt. Interestingly, a survey of the 2008 National No-Tillage Conference attendees revealed that 36% expected strip-till acres to increase 1 to 10 percent by 2010, with another 16 percent forecasting growth of 11 to 20 percent, and another 9 percent predicting growth of more than 20 percent. Some 39 percent expected no change in strip-till acreage. It's safe to say strip-till acres have grown since those decade-old projections, but it's difficult to predict the anticipated increase in strip-till acres since neither the government or anyone else collects data indicating how many acres are farmed with this system today. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, supported by AgriSolutions, we share excerpts from my conversation with Tony Vine, Professor of Agronomy and Henry A. Wallace Chair in Crop Sciences at Purdue University, who shares his perspective on the current state of strip-till and where he sees the practice evolving in the future. Tony, I guess I would start out just asking, you know, what are some things that stand out to you about how this practice has evolved or changed? Well, one of the things that I think strikes me is that it has progressively moved towards 
more and more nutrient banding at the same time as doing strip till. It has also moved more and more to uh, spring operations rather than as much focus as it was initially on fall operations. And it has moved to trying to deliver not just macronutrients, but sulfur and micronutrients at the same time. And so I view sort of the biggest change has been uh, progressively more nutrient banding and progressively more of the nutrient package being delivered that way, which concerns me to some extent, as I pointed out in the presentation, especially when the emphasis is on getting the major portion of our nitrogen on. We got those concerns because, well, maybe we're not really going down seven inches. Maybe it's just sometimes five inches, and maybe that rain isn't going to come. So that's the, like in, in some ways, I, I think that we've become more dependent on strip tail to be the biggest layer in nutrient application, but at the same time, we become a little bit too dependent on it. Um, and so this is why I'm sort of suggesting that optimization um, basically has to involve more of having a plan B for some of the macro as, as well as perhaps some of the micro. I also get a sense that we've gone progressively more to systematic drainage, at least in the eastern part of the Corn Belt. And that should improve the adoption of um, strip tillage systems because it's going to give a longer window of fall strip tillage opportunity, especially after a late harvest. And it's also going to give an earlier opportunity for spring strip till. But if you are constantly dealing with poorly drained soils where there isn't systematic drainage, then it becomes too easy and too tempting to go back to a full width tillage program. The other comment I'll make is that it kind of surprises me a little bit how much people like doing vertical tillage even prior to strip till. And that I wouldn't say necessarily is, shouldn't be necessary in terms of the great yield impacts. In other words, a strip till program that's well designed should be fine by itself without requiring like a shallow vertical tillage operation ahead of it. The number of companies that are involved in strip tillage certainly shows that there's still lots of momentum there in terms of equipment availability. And so I think that that's still healthy with a number of small but important players offering options. And I sense that there is more emphasis in uh, modern strip tillage programs to put less emphasis on going deep as opposed to more emphasis on creating a berm that is manageable and that gives me seabed quality rather than a deep loosening, which is perhaps some of the early drivers in strip till was, oh, well, we compacted in the fall and now we've got to go deep in order to loosen and then we'll try to create a berm in the same time, but it can be kind of cloudy. But now the emphasis is more on perhaps not as deep operating in soil conditions where there is more uniformity in soil moisture or soil of a certain texture and in trying to create more of an emphasis on the seabed conditioning, you might say, at the same time as doing on strip till.
The other part is I've seen very few people go to having strip tail systems that are just passively plantar width. When RTK first came out, I was pretty convinced that we would see many people choose goals a lower horsepower route and lower investment route of essentially having strip tail machines that were half of the planter width. So I was expecting planter width to continue to grow <laughs> and that the strip tail program would by and large be 50% of the planter width was. Increasingly, I see programs where people are still most comfortable with a strip tail system that matches their planter width. And perhaps with time, we will see more RTK positioning on the three-point hitch mounted or the drawn strip tail unit that will give us more capability that way, you might say, because it's always been important for me to have the planting centered on the loosened berm. Otherwise, you don't get the full benefit of the strip tillage operation. So I've been a little bit surprised that we've kind of gone back to a strip tail matching the planter width, in which case we're not really saving horsepower, and especially not when we've got to have all of this additional horsepower to operate the hydraulic drives for the nutrient applications, and sometimes the two or three bin system, plus in some cases with a liquid application at the same time. I mean, there's a, a large investment. What I'm advocating for is that we kind of go back again to thinking of strip tail as a component of our nutrient management plan and not as a single solution. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for making this podcast possible. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of infield solutions to advance your strip till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Pelota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Tony Vine with his outlook for the growth potential of strip-till and some indicators of how and why there is opportunity to expand the farming practice. So, Tony, one more question for you here, just to get some thoughts on. And certainly, we've seen trends change throughout the course of the benchmark study that we've conducted on strip-till practices. But again, maybe putting that crystal ball in front of you, what do you see potentially as the drivers of increased adoption of strip-till? And if you hinted at the fact that you do see some opportunity there for growth with the practice, but what do you think in your mind is it going to take to see some movement or, again, maybe it's going to be pockets in, in different parts of the country or even North America? America that are going to drive this. But from your seat, what do you see as possibly some of those opportunities there that are going to advance the adoption of strip-till? First of all, you must stand there. I am first and foremost a public researcher. I would like there to be the same buzz for strip-till that there's been for cover crops and for soil health over the last five years. And because we don't have very much in the way of buzz on strip-till, we don't have very detailed guidance available either for how to make it part of such a versatile system that it's going to handle both crops 
for all of your crops, that it's going to be your only system rather than just one of multiple systems. And so I believe that one of the constraints is overcoming hesitations in making strip tillage the dominant system on a particular farm and in making it acceptable for all row crops that are grown and for making it something that is used in all field conditions. I think we've moved partially to with better drainage and better strip till equipment towards being able to have the flexibility of doing more successfully in the spring, but I believe that there still are too many questions associated particularly with high residue levels with higher yielding crops that mean that, I referred to that in my talk as well, but I believe we've got to deal more aggressively with stover management options that will enhance the drying rate and that will enhance the ideal soil structure for the firms that we create. And so I'll start off by saying, I wish we had had the same investment in strip till that we obviously placed into soil health and cover crops and transition to organic egg. All of those are important. All of those are very viable options. But I believe to get to the next level, we've got to have a decidedly stronger push from our public institutions as well as from uh, soil conservation specialists so that we look at ways of not just promoting soil microbial health and soil structure from a water infiltration point of view, but so that we look at soil health in part more from the standpoint of efficiently meeting the nutrient needs so that we get the highest yields possible with the least loss to the environment. And so I believe we need to double our research on the nutrient efficiency side of crop production because of the increasingly wide gap between average yields and yield contest winter yields, as well as because of the fact that commodity prices are depressingly low at times. And that means that we need to be able to arrive at higher yield levels. Another thing that strikes me a little bit is that I believe that a technology changer on strip till would be if we could have a successful twin row planting systems for soybeans especially, and maybe for corn. So I've noticed in your survey that we do have strip till producers that are growing 22 inch or perhaps even as narrow as 20 inch. But I think there is more to begin by perhaps working with equipment companies to be thinking more of a system that would allow for twin row, but still, at least for corn, with the option of starting fertilizer. <laughs> so maybe I'm asking for too much here, but I'll just go out and say that I believe what holds us up in strip till adoption for soybeans more than anything is the fact that we don't have a narrow row option. And I believe that twin row systems are the most expedient way of combining the benefits of both. In other words, both narrow rows as well as strip till. And I believe that if we can put that together with the stover processing to get uh, faster warm-up in the spring, then I think we will achieve more planting date flexibility. We are planting our crops 
into progressively wetter and wetter spring seasons. And so having that drying advantage is something that we have to pay more attention to, both in terms of how we do our strip tillage in the first place, or its timing, but also in terms of how are we managing the rest of the residue that we had from the previous years. The other part of it is that, for the most part, I have a sense that the cover crops are combined with no-till systems, and cover crops are too sparingly used when we go into strip-till. I noticed that in your survey, there was many strip-till producers who obviously, to their credit, planting cover crops. But my guess is that the majority of those are using those prior to a no-till seeding system in the other crops that they're growing and not that they're using cover crops, especially high density cover crops where you're really going after maximum rooting volume and and high level of green mass production. So it's my guess that there's still more to be learned in terms of cover crop integration. And then finally, I'll say that I believe that part of our crop diversification in the future has to deal with integration of cereal cropping systems more often with uh, winter wheat, perhaps winter barley, and even perhaps in the more northern areas, uh, spring barley systems uh, together with strip-till because we can get some really, really nice soil structure with the combination of strip-till together when you begin on cereal crops double. It's an easier and, uh, and often more satisfactory berm situation that you get in that environment than you wouldn't necessarily, let's say, buy what else would I look for? I guess I would look for um, RTK guidance on the strip-till unit, and I would look for more on-the-go depth adjustment for different soil conditions. That would be to make the berm condition more uniform. And so the people that struggled in spring strip-till were those that were out there early, who remembered all of the horror of all of the rains last year, and who mudded in the strip-till in spring. They didn't have satisfactory results, especially not if they tried to plant soon after that spring strip-till. And I guess that's always going to be a concern for me. Thank you, Tony, for sharing your insight and outlook on the current and future opportunities and obstacles for strip-till. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily email. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2020 podcast series. For Tony Vine, AgriSolutions, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.